Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle. Dan 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 Quayle. Quayle. (laughs) Well, that's getting put in, like, every episode. Ready graphics? Ready theme? Gumption, which we'll talk about more later. We like Gumption yeah. on this show. I just realized I just referred to Candace Bergen's Street Value. We need to talk about this pink dress. I think I'm Miles. And they get a very unenthusiastic, yay. Hi. Yes. Stack of Bibles. Stack of Bibles. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season one, episode three, Nowhere to Run. Hi, guys. Welcome back. To, hey, guys. Hey, thanks for joining us again. We're or here. if you're joining us for the first time, hello. Hello, and we'll see you um, back in those earlier episodes. Yeah. And we'll act like we didn't know you, like it's a special secret it between very, very special. Why are you listening to season one, episode three? Why don't you go start with the pilot? I mean, maybe they really like this one. See, now I'm reprimanding people. That's terrible. That's okay. They get it. They love us. We love them. We do. Thank yeah. you for the people who have uh, reached out with positive reviews on the podcast. Thank you so much. That's we're so excited. That's been so nice. It's, I think we forget that we're sending it out into the ether. Actually, on that note, speaking of people who have listened to our podcast, I have some really exciting news. Jesse's very excited. We're both super excited. Yeah. But I cried. Uh- I cried as well. <laughs> so... We got a lovely message uh, after last episode about Devil with a Blue Dress on from the writer of said episode, uh, Corby Siamis, uh, who reached out to us to uh, pay us some lovely compliments on our, yes, our dissection very, of the episode lovely. and give us some really fun tidbits. Yeah, really cool tidbits. Yeah, we wanted to share with you guys. So a couple of the things that we had kind of speculated about turned out to be true. And some of them were wrong. Some of them were wrong, but that's okay. The cold opening, uh, we were right. It was supposed to be bait and switch. The plan was for it to be the audience assuming it was Murphy. Can I correct that? Yeah. You were right. Oh, you're so nice to me. I was the one that went, oh yeah, I didn't notice that. <laughs> it's okay. We, If I'm right, we're right. And yes, Lauren, you were right that Candace threw in the line about legs like a dachshund. It's funny interview stuff that I remember from when I was mm-hmm. 12. Mm-hmm. You, it, that's when the formative memories are made. Pretty much. We found out from Corby that she did not intend for the character to be a, based on Donald Trump. She had no idea who he was back then. Yeah, and that was something that I think we both agreed seemed a little odd, and it seemed to be Mm -hmm. added by the writer of the Murphy Brown book that we're using. Yeah. A very interesting tidbit. This episode was filmed third, but aired second. Yes, and what I really found even more fascinating, and I think we'll talk about it when we get there, is Mm -hmm. that the second episode was meant to be Set Me Free, Mm -hmm. which starts off with Murphy almost falling off the wagon with cigarettes. Uh And so it's interesting to me, and obviously we'll talk about it more when we get there, that it it lands differently later. when that is later on than it being the second episode. And immediately after she returns. Like, that's that's a very interesting connotation. Yeah. That I was thinking more about why, why this second as opposed to why that one not second. We found out that our... our <laughs> dissection of the wait for the next teller dartboard was uh we went a little too far and that was just something fun that they threw in um that would annoy murphy if she went to the bank for those who don't remember um it was uh her dartboard in um the second episode was the next teller wait for the next teller, which we thought meant savings and loans crisis i think the issue was that because i know that a lot of them are just jokes Mm -hmm. but i this is going to get all sad, but I remember when um, Rebecca Schaefer was mm-hmm. killed, there was a gun control thing yep. on the, you know, so I, I thought, oh, this is, and maybe I thought I heard it somewhere. I don't know, but I think it, hey, I, I love our, our chance to connect it to things that were relevant at the time. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a fun little Easter egg and some of them were larger Easter eggs than others. And we, we took a swing and we enjoyed it and we shared some very interesting information. We did. And that's what this is about. Exactly. So thank you, Corby, for letting us know. Uh, uh, we Something that was fun is the moment when the whole crew scrambles, knowing that Murphy's going to unload on Corky. Uh, apparently the moment when Miles trips, uh, Corby loves that. Uh, it wasn't written. It came from either Grant Shaw or Barnett Kelman, our director. Another fun thing that we found very interesting was that she loves the threat to Corky like we do. Um, doesn't think that that's something that you could get away with now because it'd be too gruesome to threaten to kill someone. And I, I think that's actually pretty pretty relevant, uh, especially how she threatens her. I think we have a lot of jokes about like, oh, I'm going to get you. But the way she just, the way we read that quote and it just goes into depth about all the horrifying ways that she could kill her, <laughs> I don't think we could quite get away with nowadays. Yeah, and Candace sells it so, so well. well. 
So I, I was really excited to hear from Corby. It really meant a lot, uh, her yeah, work. Thank you, Corby. Yeah, thank you, Corby. That was really sweet. I'm glad to hear that she has fond memories. Um, it's the first Murphy that she wrote, and she loved adding depth to Corky. And it shows to me. It's why it's my favorite episode this season. So thanks, Corby. And then um, something that I actually found out in a Google search. Ooh, the Google. Is that, you know, last time, Jesse asked people if they would make a gift for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am asking anyone who's listening who is from the Buffalo area <laughs> or lives near Buffalo State. Although we were thinking we might take a trip. but it, A field trip. A field trip when we can afford to stay in a bed and breakfast. Yes, and that, that would be a, a long-term goal. Yes, this is a very long term. So a short term fix. I have discovered that they house something called the Diane English Collection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm laughing because when I found it, I just like jokingly, like out loud as a joke, was like, "What have I found?" <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautiful fangirl moment. If I didn't know better, I'd think this was my collection. Hmm. Um, So it's actually, um, Diane is from Buffalo and went to Buffalo State, and um, she donated a bunch of boxes of different scripts. Now, what makes it interesting to me, and I think interesting to you guys Mm -hmm. listening, is that they're all early drafts. Um, And we're going to talk about more about the process of how the show is written and rehearsed. It's a very specific week in a sitcom, you know, when we Mm -hmm. we have more time. But long story short is as they go along, the script does change. Now, um, Murphy Brown particularly, I don't know about some other shows at the time, but I know from Murphy Brown, something that I really loved is that they said that they would purposely overwrite the scripts Mm -hmm. so that there would be character things in there that they would later have to cut because it was, you know, it's a shorter episode, but because the week is so fast and things would change so quickly, the actors would have already played those sort of character moments, you know, under the lines. I think it's interesting to you know, read about that character mm-hmm. stuff. You get a more of a sense of who the characters are, things that people were thinking, alternate jokes. Um, I know as a writer, I would never want someone to read my early drafts, so it's horrible, but I find it fascinating, and I actually have a small collection of Murphy Brown early drafts. Yeah. Mostly the Jerry Gold collection. Oh, Jerry. Uh, which we'll talk more about my love of oh, that character. We'll talk about Jerry. Yeah. Uh, as we get closer to him, unfortunately, it's not until... Oh, no, wait, actually, next week, we're, we're going to have to talk about Jerry. It's okay, you don't have to wait much longer. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for other reasons we'll talk about at the end of the show. Um, so if anyone is near the Buffalo area mm-hmm. and can make an appointment at the research library and make a photocopy for us, we would be forever grateful. You'll get a shout-out, at least. Uh, a major <laughs> shout-out. Great. Um, but yeah, so thank you so much. So now let's go quickly into the episode, because uh, we have wasted enough time <laughs> on that. Uh, so Nowhere to Run is directed by Barnett Kelman. It is written by Russ Woody. Our first male writer. Yes, which I hadn't so even far. thought about because it's it's a mostly male. Ca- uh, I was gonna say cast uh, writing staff, mm-hmm. but the first two, two are were written by women. Yeah, women, very influential women in this particular very show. Very much. Uh, so far, we've been directed by Barnett. Um, it aired on November twenty first, nineteen eighty eight. Guess when we're recording it? When are we recording this, Jesse? November twenty first, twenty seventeen. Not on purpose. Hey <laughs> Just the date that we were. It just to makes do me this. so happy. Yeah. And the opening song is "Nowhere to Run." By uh, a band you may have heard uh, Lauren talk about last episode. They're my favorite, Martha and the Vandellas. <laughs> it was for the Gordy label, which is a Motown label. And, oh, I never say their name correctly. Can you, they're so famous. Can you say the name of the group that wrote that? Uh, oh, Holland Dozier Holland. Dozier, that's how you say it. Okay. It depicts the story of a woman trapped in a bad relationship with a man she cannot help but love. Which Aww. is not really what we see. Oh, and the Funk Brothers. Oh, the Funk Brothers. Funk Brothers. Have you seen that documentary in the Funk yes. Brothers? Oh, it's amazing. I'm reading this like I didn't type this up like three months ago. <laughs> I was like, you wrote this. I did, but it was three months ago. You're like, ooh, so, I'm so clever. Yeah. Look at these tidbits um, I found. It was 358 on the Rolling Stone list of 500 greatest songs of all time. Just another example, some of the songs that this group wrote were Baby Love, Stop in the Name of Love, You Keep Me Hanging On, mm. and Heat Wave, which is one of my favorite oh, Martha and the Vandellas yeah. songs. That and, and um, Quicksand. I love those two songs. So like with Corby, uh, Russ did write a biography, only it's an actual biography, mm. and it's hysterical. <laughs> so um, this, of course, is from 1990. Russ Woody was born in San Francisco Bay Area. His first indication that he was headed for a creative vocation came at a very early age, when he realized his parents were insane. <laughs> After completing a BA in broadcast journalism at California State University, Chico, Woody went on to become one of the most highly paid bartenders in Boot County area. <laughs> 
But though it was tough giving up an $8,000 a year job, in 1980, he moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in show business. Mm. There he suffered, struggled, and starved until he landed a prestigious position as a production assistant on the highly acclaimed television show Benson. Ooh. Ah. <laughs> though at the time, Woody had no idea that 1983 would become a milestone in his career when he wrote scripts for both Webster and Fantasy Island. It is a pride he will carry with him for the rest of his life. Mm. Was a story editor on Valerie, where unfortunately he was fired (laughs) before everyone hated each other and people had to go to court. This is true. This actually really happened. Soon afterwards, Woody was put on staff at Slap Maxwell. Unfortunately, that went down the toilet during the writer's strike of 1988, and he ended up on Murphy. (laughs) Uh, After this, some people may know Woody. He's an amazing writer. He wrote for Sybil. Mm-hmm. show that we love, we love Becker, show. Mad About You, and did write Double Rush, uh, which is a dying English show that was created for Robert Pastorelli. Amazing. Yeah. And something else that I just really thought was great to sort of describe Russ, and as we go through the series and you see his episodes, you will get this. Yep. You get to know your writers very well. This is Diane. Uh, Russ is a very angst-written person and a very gentle guy with a very quirky sense of humor. Some would say warped. <laughs> we like that. that. We like that a lot. And it and it makes sense looking at the shows that he did later, including Sybil and Becker and Mad About You. Like, these are all shows that had these wonderfully joyous yet yet warped and slightly dark senses of humor. And mm-hmm. I, that's why I and my family love them so much. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he wrote the first Jerry Gold episode. I realize I didn't double check that, but I'm pretty sure he did. Man. Because that's she's why. Giving, she's giving Russ all the credit for her. Her man. Well, it's it's team written, guys. It's team written. <laughs> All right. Well, so should we jump in? Yeah, let's jump in. Great. So we open on the title song, Nowhere to Run, by Martha and the Videllas. Uh, Miles is all confident, and he's getting on the elevator. And the door opens, and Miles is looking a little diminished and tired. And he's because he's stuck between two maintenance workers all of a sudden. There's a file cabinet and a mop, which he is helpfully holding. <laughs> He tries to point the way um, toward the doorway is to say, this is my stop. And then they bring in a giant potted plant. He's so timid. He's I, so sweet and timid. And like, again, why aren't you saying, where's a freight elevator? Is there not a freight elevator? I was thinking that too. Why are they not in the freight elevator? Why, why, jo- why are maintenance workers and a filing cabinet and a mop and, and, a, and a giant a, plant? And a guy with a cigar? And all of these things. I mean, the guy with the cigar, I mean, smoking indoors is its own special funny thing. Um, but... I, because that's just not done anymore. But if you look at that elevator, that is not an elevator for more than a handful of people. No. So why they're putting freight level? Th- I don't know. Maybe they don't have a freight elevator. Because it was funny, Jesse. It was funny. I just feel bad for my Miles, who is just Aww. sweet Miles. He's <laughs> just clearly being so nice. And he's just wilting more and more. Because then a giant potted plant like goes in the way of him getting out. Then there's a man with a cigar uh, who comes in? And He's like at essential casting. I mean, yeah. of course he probably is, but like that guy is just like, yeah, you want to take some bets? Or I'm an agent in this building. I got a cigar and I, I got a cigar. Wearing a waistcoat, and we the door closes and it opens again. The maintenance workers leave, and Miles looks like he's gonna pass out. Like it is, like he's choking on he's it. He's choking on smoke. What I love is is Grant has such great body language in this, oh, and he's just teetering over on this angle while, you can while see holding he's the mop. Air. Yeah, <laughs> he's hol- the he's mop. still holding the mop, yeah. and and so of course the maintenance workers come back in. So it's like the thing he's leaning on. So he's just losing his mind. The smoke is slowly falling out, and then it closes, it opens, and then the worst monsters of all, teenage girls from the 80s, come in. (gasps) They're the worst. In denim. And then they get off the elevator, and the one lingers, and you see her, and I love, to this girl's credit, you see, like, it's in her shoulder, you see her press every single button all the way down, and they take their time, and then she just walks out and leaves them in there, so he has to go through every floor. There's there's this, this stance at one point that Grant does that he'll do throughout the show, which his his hands and his his arms sort of like against his stomach mm-hmm. and and they're not really clenched per se it's just this sort of amazing sort of comic stance and like his hands and something that i think is so amazing about um grant shot is he's got great comic timing which mm-hmm. of course everyone does but his physicality um we don't get as much in this episode but we do get later when he he the angst in his voice yeah i've seen grant on stage several times actually and um unedited even seeing him he just has this impeccable sense of timing and physicality um, comedically. And he's, I think it works because he's so open and vulnerable. So 
as he deflates, you just you have nothing but empathy for this poor guy who, again, could have just snapped at somebody. He could have just told the girl to stop pressing buttons, but he is just destroyed. He has such highs and lows. You know, Mm -hmm. he goes from being like, all right, let's get this meeting started, guys. I got this going, you know, this bravado he puts on. And Mm -hmm. then he just like becomes this neurotic piece of. He's a puppy. He's a little puppy. He's a little puppy. A little puppy. Uh, So Miles arrives and Corky is ready. She is ready to chat. And I, again, my love of Corky's gumption. She's like, I've got a story, and it's a big deal. And so my she's favorites. And she starts running joke, pitching because she's trying, man. She's trying. She pitches that she wants to do a story on this amazing woman, Indira Gandhi, who is dead, dead. which she doesn't know. Also dead. Then she suggests Margaret Mead, also dead. Finally, Golda Meir, also dead. And my favorite thing. <laughs> Poor Corky doesn't know. Really excited about it. So her next line is, all women, all famous, all dead. I think I'm onto something, Miles. I'll get back to you. And she just runs with it. (laughs) The thing is, when I first saw this, I thought, oh, God, what an idiot. But I don't know if things have changed. But now looking back, I go, hey, at least she knows who they are. Except she knows the names and and she knows that they're valuable people. Yeah, she just doesn't remember that one of them died in 1978. Exactly. Like, she... She read enough about them to be like, oh, fascinating. I want to highlight this accomplished, interesting woman uh, who was notable. And she she's trying to prop other women up, which is something we've talked about in the last episode. So she's trying to do that. She just didn't quite finish her research. I wonder if maybe she was just, it's a cer- there's a certain decade of uh, where Corky is just prepping for, you know, all of her uh, pageants, maybe. Mm-hmm. And she was young, too. She was younger at the time. So, it you know, she's a younger woman in this scenario. So... She was busy with the pageant circuit and doing what, you know, was within her bubble. And now she's she's educating herself. She's learning about these people. Like, I imagine that she learned about these women. And before she got to the end of the biography, jumped up to say she's got the story. And just didn't quite get to the last page. It just, it makes me sad. Because I, you know, you'd think with the internet that therefore we would be a more knowledgeable people. But what it happens is that people only know about sort of select things. It's clickbait. We're clickbait culture. We just read the headline now. Yeah, or if you're not going to seek it out, you're not going to know. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like lately I've spent so much time trying to explain like who Dan Quayle was oh. or Uncle Merkel is. <laughs> <laughs> All of these people who are in the headlines right mm-hmm. now are important. And I, I have to explain the context of what I'm talking about because mm-hmm. they don't know who they are. And just to clarify, everyone, we, we know that there wasn't internet when... Corky was researching. This was a segue into the relevancy of today. Yes. But there is something about the amount of research you had to go into to find out who someone was then if you didn't have the the most recent paper in front of you. And the fact that I... Well, Corky doesn't read the paper. No. But again, she's going in and doing research and how much you have to do to catch yourself up. Whereas now people seem to think that because the information is readily available, they don't have to look as far, but you still have Mm. to read. Yeah. You still have to go farther. And especially during this headline clickbait listicle world that we're in right now, it's pretty sad that with the amount of information we have, we still seem to know just as little as if you don't read the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. Anywho. So uh, Miles meets a Murphy's new secretary, known in the script as secretary number six. So we're at number six. Yeah, although I realized going back, I was telling Jesse this, that they do say, sometimes they say names in the Mm -hmm. the script, but really they're credited as the number secretary, Mm -hmm. which is really great. And we get into the 90s eventually by season 10. Sure do. Uh, So uh, Miles asks the secretary if Murphy's in a good mood. And she goes, sure, fine. It's sure, fine. No problem. So Miles knocks on Murphy's door, and she just screams, Get lost! Such a perfect Murphyism, and, and it's interesting now, in retrospect, knowing that this is not really the third, may not really be the third episode. I'm mm-hmm. curious if this is actually now going in order, but we'll, I guess we'll find that out. Um, I also love these moments when we like we come in, and Murphy's doing her job, mm-hmm. and she's on the phone, and she's asking for Mickey, who I'm assuming probably works in the archives department. I assume so, based yeah. on the context. Exactly. She needs German footage <laughs> for her missing Nazi thing. I just thing. need German footage. Yeah. Mickey needs to do it for the good of the show, and she bribes him with 40 lines. 40, I don't do football. What is it? 40? 40 yard line. 40 yard lines. It's a good seat. It's almost in the almost in the center. I do know that. Yes. Mostly from comedy stuff. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. People usually I know it from it. being a Vikings fan my entire life. Right. 
we were a baseball family. It's okay. We balance each other. That's true. We do. Hey, we really do. Uh, Murphy is really excited because she's pretty sure that she's found Nazis, <laughs> which is different from today. Oh, um, yep. Off a small fishing because village. Just for everyone's reference, back then Nazis were not a current problem. No, they were a thing of the past that we had defeated. And they were Aww. hiding. They were in hiding. They were yeah. actually in hiding. What a wonderful, what a time to be alive, What a time everybody. to be alive, everyone. Nazis in hiding. Mm. I also, for some reason, really fixated on the word a small fishing village. I don't know if it's been used on the show before, but it is it is definitely a comic setup. The phrasing of it is yeah. amusing. It's very, it, it paints a picture. And there's a lot of shush and fuzz in it. Very funny, small funny sounds. Village. Yeah, it's a... Off the coast of Argentina. It's amusing. Miles tries to kind of manipulate uh, Murphy. It's very obvious that he doesn't really want her to do the story. You know, Diane Sawyer did that story last week, but it's not like people compare you to. I love that in the first couple episodes, we already have her... And this happens again later in this episode. They mention the big J. Yeah, they do. She really has it out for Jane Pauley. And Diane Sawyer. Like, you have this idea of this woman who is cutthroat and trying to make it in a in an industry that has very few spots for women of yeah. power. Well, what I also love about lines like this is that it's funny. Um, it's... Uh, shows that Miles is trying to get to a certain goal. Mm-hmm. And it gives us, uh, not necessarily backstory, I guess, but like it frames the picture of the world mm-hmm. that Murphy lives in. Because we're new to the show. She's a fictional character in a real world. Mm-hmm. And that gives her context. Well, and I think also this gives Miles a boost of credibility. He knows what to say. He's not stupid. And I like that moment of, I mean, he doesn't do it in a very savvy way. <laughs> it's pretty obvious what he's trying yeah, to do. Yeah. But it does work, and he does know what to say to make it work. So it shows that, you know, he's not just there by means of nepotism or anything. Like, like he, he actually could be very good at this job. Yeah. Well, he's got gumption. He got gumption. Which we'll talk about more later. We like gumption yeah. on this show. So Miles instead wants Murphy to do a story that he has a source on about a federal prosecutor who slept with hookers, Robert Hawks. Uh, I love the fact that Murphy says that she doesn't think that that's a story that's a given. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I also love that she then ignores him to turn around to write on a post-it. Yes. Because it's, it's, I love business, I love business, I love props. Mm -hmm. Because it it shows reality. You know, you don't just stand there and talk to someone. Never. You do stuff. And it also shows that she's like, I'm busy, leave me alone. Well, and it's one of several post-its on that. And what I like is the post-its are on the edge of shelves. Like you show like the the clutter and mess of her office, and there's like the ant farm that's in there. I believe the ant farm was Candace's idea. A lot of that stuff yeah. was Candace's, but I know she talks about that she loved the ant farm. I love the gar- Godzilla with the pencil in its mouth. Yes, and so you see, like she doesn't just put the the post-its are not on her desk. She turns around and they're stuck to the side, the edges of shelves beneath the the ant farm. So she just kind of, I love that, and it's it's kind of a journalist trope, but the. They kind of have thoughts and things and things and pins everywhere around because their mind is trying to piece things together. But it creates this world of, you know, she's not she's not a very put together and organized young lady. She like puts posters where she needs them and she writes it down and she does this and she's just doing her job. It's such a great set. Mm-hmm. Uh, the detail in that set, Roy Christopher is a set designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually have a really great article from Entertainment Weekly I can bring and we can talk about um, at some point where it goes through all the different things in her office cool. and in her um, townhouse, which is cool. great. I love the fact that um, Murphy sort of grills Miles on like what he has, like who, what, whom, where. And, and what really piques her interest is the fact that it's someone who may be putting together a Senate campaign. Mm-hmm. And then there's, of course, the running joke about that the name of the source is the asp. The asp. The asp, as opposed to the ass. It's such a simple joke that they yeah. could have completely ignored. And I love that they just lean in with asp, the asp, asp, asp. It reminds me of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, where they keep saying that he's um, in um, priest school. Priest school. <laughs> and everyone's like, preschool? Priest, priest school. school. It's so like simple. It's, it's so, so funny, it and also works. the delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, and and you know, unfortunately, the these scandals of Senate campaigns are something that we can't understand at all these days. No, of course mm. not. This is a this is an ancient tome of the past. Yes. What a what a dated concept. So on that note, she heads off because now apparently the asp will be waiting at Phil's. So we get our we get our latest close the door gag 
as they really walk. loud too. It is a loud they, close the door. They, they've come together as a unit. They want you to close that door. They 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 have been practicing. Am I right that Jim is sitting behind them at the bar, just hanging out? Oh my god, I didn't notice that. I or it's someone just I just saw in passing as I was rewatching I again. I, I think is. Jim was just hanging out in the background. We can go, well, we can hey, pause and go and watch in it. My, in my fan, my fan canon, my, my fan fiction, that's what I'm saying. In my fan fiction, Jim's sitting behind them and just doing his thing. Okay, that's cool. Uh, so she comes in, asks Phil, says she's meeting, is, is the asp there? And again, asp, asp, like the snake. <laughs> and he says, oh yeah, he's, the asp is over there. She heads over and immediately goes to what looks like a potentially shady looking dude who might have some info, sits down at a table with him. A guy. And we get the lovely line of, if you got something for me, let's see it. If not, I got stuff to do. I love that the audience just like, we know where this joke we is know, going. We know this is not the asp. And he thinks she's a prostitute. <laughs> and the reaction is, well, you smell nice. Eh, I got 30 bucks. Well, how come in sitcoms? Okay. Cause, <laughs> oh, no, cause here we go. This is the only experience that I've had with hookers is from movies from the 80s. What and is sitcoms? the correct price? They always... Say like thirty. Do hookers really cost thirty bucks? They do not, um, Lauren. I don't have experience. I'm just gonna give you that spoiler now. That's I don't I, know. But it's got to be hundreds but of I dollars. But I know that it's way more than thirty dollars. But they always offer the woman like. It, I guess the joke is that you're so ugly that I'm gonna offer you thirty. It's Candace Bergen. Well, no, but then he does say, "Oh, you're Murphy Brown. Okay, forty bucks. Still ten dollars. So really, more. she does get a. That's like a one third markup. Okay. So in in the ratio, and it's not the first joke about no. about her street value that happens. I know, uh, and, and we talked about this. Like did I just the say, way- wait, sorry, I just realized I just referred to Candace Bergen's street value. Her street value. I mean, hey, oh, I, I yes, I respect her more than forty dollars, um, but I respect her. So there we are. Um, so, but we talked about this. Her playing uncomfortable oh with the scenario is so wonderful. It's my absolute favorite thing that she does Candace Bergen oh. it it's the one thing that's great about it is that it's a comic moment that is a reaction so mm-hmm. it's real um it's it's all in her eyes and her face and she literally says nothing and it's hysterical she she's like no and she gets up and she you know she goes to the next table and because we realize of course that the asp is a woman which is a great thing that she assumed it, it was a man my favorite thing played by the amazing fran ryan oh my god she's a legend if you do not know who fran ryan is google right now she she just uh died i mean relatively recently in 2000 uh she's in Everything. She's Everything. in the 60s Batman, episode 43. Um, she's in Chips, Quantum Leap, Night Court. Uh, she's in Chances Are, which, which I know you love. My favorite movies. Um, with And what I realized watching the trailer again for Chances Are is that Kathleen Friedman, who we talked about in mm-hmm. the pilot, who plays one of the secretaries. Who comes also, back, right? No, she doesn't. Oh, Mrs. Caldwell does not No, only back. Robert okay. comes back. Only Robert. Yeah. Um, she is um, another one of those sort of amazing, you know, character actresses, just like Fran is in that movie. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, well, it's a chances are is a gift to everyone who appreciates a good character actress. Yeah. Uh, so yes, the Asp is a woman, and she's sitting in Phil's, drinking a margarita, and she's done. Oh my gosh, it's so she is done. One of my favorite lines is, "The guy is a lizard. I am not a piece of meat," and I love the fact that she is over it because he wouldn't stop making passes at her and the joke is is like you look at this character actress and character actresses are not known for being the candace bergens of the world uh so the joke is like okay lady but i what i love and this is jumping a little bit ahead but what i love is that the show leans into a mature woman as a sexual object because as she walks out <laughs> she phil what does she tell him not to look at her like that? I forget what it is, but he what says, are looking at what are you looking at? And he yeah. says, you walk like that, you got to expect it, kid. And I just love the word, like, refusing to back down from that this mature woman could be a sexual object, and well, it's wonderful. What's great, too, is that Fran just, like, she takes it. Okay. She's like, she's like oh, oh, I know. Okay, and, it's, like, walks oh. out with confidence. She just walks with a swagger. I'm like, yes, get it, Fran. So he was all, the asp says that, uh, that Hawks was always undressing her with his eyes. And she said, you got to do the rest yourself. Um, and so she shares that she has a letter between Hawks and Leon Sturgis, who is the mob boss, uh, thanking for the hookers in exchange for the sway 
for his Senate campaign. So meaning Hawk has mob connections. You know, I was thinking while she's reading the letter, I was like, this would have been an email today. Mm. Oh, absolutely. They would have had yeah. the, you know, the USB with the email on it or something like that. Um, so yes, so she gives her that and says um, she's done her part and Murphy's got to get the rest of it. And so waves her off with this great like nod back to the fact that she's drinking a margarita and fills with, well, it's been a fiesta. I also just find it so fascinating is uh, I hate the line, but I know why it's there. I don't hate it, but it's just so crazy. Again, talking about, you know, mm-hmm. Candace Bergen is so beautiful. They try to make these jokes about her being older and it doesn't really work. <laughs> um, she's so stunning. She's so, and, t- and I know the show is behind the scenes. I've heard them talk about that. Mm-hmm. You know, they try to like make jokes like that. The asp says to Murphy, <laughs> yes. honey, you've put on a little weight. You ought to lay off the crawlers. The crawlers. And the, the look that she gives, the, again, the, it's like a classic Murphy look. Uh-huh. I think I screen capped it. Yep. I, I put it on the Twitter. It's beautiful. Um, is amazing. But also this idea of that line is trying to show that because Murphy is famous, strangers will tell her things that people would not yes. tell a person that they knew yes. well. Because they feel familiar. They think that they can tell that she's put on yeah. weight or something like that. So which, it's such an important yeah. line to have because it's about a lot of what the original you mm-hmm. know ideas about the show was. But it also was just like... Candace Bergen is not fat and like that. What are you talking about? It's the we're suspending the disbelief of the of the characters. Yes. Uh, so yes, the Fran kills it. The Asp is amazing. Yeah. So then Murphy um, goes back to her office. She rattles off some orders of research for Secretary Number Six, who we of course know does not actually understand English, um, then comes back and sort of apologizes, which is really nice for, she's like, I'm sorry, I haven't gotten to know you. Um, uh, you know, just let it roll off your back. You know, I have a lot of work to do, blah, blah, blah. And then Murphy figures it out. Mm-hmm. And she says, there's a roving band of gypsies behind you and they want to make you their, their queen. Which is wonderful. Yes. They want you to be their queen. It's great. Uh, and so then Murphy goes back in her office. She's working on her story. Um, she's got a lot of dirt on Hawks and Sturges. Um, and then Miles comes in, and he's trying to very obviously convince her not to do the story. And I love he's like, Hitler's golfing buddies are walking around scot-free. <laughs> uh, and the reason that um, Miles is sort of freaking out about this, in fact, I love Murphy says that he's blithering, which mm-hmm. is so specific because he totally is. Yes. Um, is that he got a death threat? And someone called him and said that he's going to send me to Toledo in several small sandwich bags, which is also a great bunch of alliterating S's. Comedic S's are funny. And one of the best things is the reaction he gets to this this news that he shares with Murphy. Murphy takes him into... the bullpen and is like Miles got his first death threat and everybody applauds. Like, yeah, yeah. And she says it's his rite of passage. And then of course, because Miles is just a big walking Jewish joke. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding, not all the time. Um, I had my rite of passage. There was a rabbi in a buffet. Uh, I just thought of, and I, the secretary yeah, is. Yeah. I just want to acknowledge the fact that that is a joke that we really couldn't get away with as well in a sitcom. Yeah, because she's I was thinking Asian. about that actually. And yeah. I, I think it's important to comment on because it's funny, but you know when we do talk about because, as Corby said, there are certain jokes that we can't get away with as well because of the news or current climates or so on. This is something that I don't. I also don't think would go over very well it's she's never been my favorite secretary but Mm -hmm. i have to say i gave her some credit i'm jumping ahead a little bit Mm -hmm. but when uh tiffany comes in Mm -hmm. and scares everyone to think that he's gonna kill miles but he's actually miles's bodyguard Mm -hmm. everyone jumps down and she doesn't know what's happening and then you see her slowly just like go down to the (laughs) ground and i had never noticed it before kudos to that actress she sells it so well i was like that's great you took a really small part and you added that small little thing that it's really fun so funny and i didn't notice it the first time Mm -hmm. so murphy is concerned why they they don't want to kill her she's the one doing the story and it's like they're old-fashioned about killing women which murphy (laughs) thinks is really sexist but she's offended that they won't kill women more reasons to nail them to the wall (laughs) um so she goes out they you know they go out and they talk to everybody in the bullpen and this is one of my absolute favorite moments um is jim reassures miles that um that you know when it happened to him you know, he was really upset the first time. And Miles like, oh, what happened? What did you do? Or I think he says that he was so, like, beside himself. And Miles wants an example. I forget the exact exchange. But he's a very deadpan. Charlie is just, like, two minutes to air. I look down. And I realize I'm wearing a light blue tie with a brown suit. 
And he puts his hands up and just goes, stack of Bibles. <laughs> and stack of Bibles, to me, is just, oh my God, hilarious. Stack of Bibles. Stack of Bibles. It's so deadpan. <laughs> it also reminded me that it took a while for us to get, like, sort of, you know, deeper into Jim Dial. Um, so everyone assures him, including Murphy, that there's never a follow through, that, you know, it's just words. And then Tiffany, who I spoke of, uh, a guy who looks like, I would say, a stereotypical hood, gets off the elevator. <laughs> um, and everyone just jumps down, which is that moment we just talked about. Of course, it's not a hood. Tiffany Howard. Uh, but his name is Tiffany yeah, Howard. But she doesn't get. Miles is like, huh, isn't that a girl's name? All right, no. Um, so he has a standard agreement that he's going to sign. And as soon as Miles says that uh, Sturgis is involved, he comes up with a crazy excuse that he's going to run to Jazzercise. Jazzercise! Which is very big in the 80s. Yes, I love uh, that we get a Jazzercise reference. One of my favorite things as a child was Mousercise, which was an album that I had, which was the Disney characters doing Jazzercise. I know what you're talking about. You do? Oh, my yes. God. It's wonder Anything that has to do with, like, cute animals, I know I about. loved it so, so much. And so he leaves. And Miles is like, I'm a dead man. And the secretary goes, sure, fine, no problem. No problem. <laughs> I also realized I hadn't mentioned that Diane actually said that this idea of roving horrible secretaries is a bit based on the secretarial pool at Warner Brothers. Ooh, shade, Yeah, I love it. And here's another of my favorite parts. So then we cut to Corky, uh, who is, it's the next day, I think. Probably they're wearing it's different. Later. They're wearing different clothes. We've changed clothes. It's the a best new day. way for us to know is they're changing. Yeah, they're yeah, they, It's a new day. So Corky is on the phone and she is working on this story, and we get, oh no! Well, when did Mrs. Mrs. Perone pass on? And then you clearly find out that you know she's been trying to. This is Ava Perone is the is the reference, and she's clearly trying to research her. Oh, she's gone. And then the next line is my condolences to Mr. Perone. <laughs> Such a great laugh line because there's the pause. Oh, because oh, no, you know what's happening. The, the Corky's whole little sort of running joke is based on the audience being two yep. steps ahead of her, which I think and is realizing, just fantastic. Yep. And so the Perone part is my favorite part. But really, Corky never saw a musical. Uh, maybe not. Didn't, she was busy. She didn't see Evita. That's for sure. That's a. I mean. I can believe that she might not have seen it. I know, I'm making a joke. She might have gone to something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, busy, busy. Be nice to my Corky. I'm sorry. I apologize. We, we laugh with her. Um, so Frank... I sometimes laugh at her. <laughs> I, I do laugh at her as well, but then I love her. Um, so Frank then tries to helpfully <laughs> suggest she, she try Imelda Marcos. And at this point, she thinks she's now two steps ahead and is like, oh, no, believing that she is also dead. Yes. The one person suggested to her <laughs> that is alive and she won't believe you. I love them. Murphy arrives off the elevator and we need to talk about this pink dress. Um, it's this a fantastic suede. suede flipped collar dress. The flipped collar is what gets me. Oh, it's so good. I always try to do that. Um, mostly I'm trying to look like Angela Petrelli from Heroes. Yes. But it doesn't look as cool on me as it does on Candace Bergen. Uh, so Murphy gets off the elevator. There's a new secretary. Number seven. Number seven. My Katie lucky Holtz. number. Uh, she seems perfect. She has administration history. She's worked in a bunch of different things. You know, she is, she's a tried and true secretary. And then proceeds to say that she spoke to Satan this morning, and Satan was very positive about what was going to happen that day. To which Murphy just, I love what Candace Bergen does. She just stands her kind of deadpan, registering that she finally she's, got a good one. And she's a, kind of terrified. She finally got a good one, and of course they worship Satan. Uh, and then just hands her a stapler and says, take the stapler to the lobby. <laughs> And she, is, does. and she does. And she does. She's like, okay. she doesn't question it. She does. She's a great secretary. I think that in 2017, she's still standing in the lobby she's with that stapler. Still there, just doing her job. Yep. Uh, Miles gets off the elevator, looking a little worse for wear. He's got some some sort of like some stuff one on his shoulder. One of his the lenses of his glasses is a little uh, scuffed up and uh, covered in dirt. And you find out he's been almost hit by a car. And he's like, oh no, well, it was probably an accident. He said, it followed me for two and a half blocks. <laughs> And he's like, but this happens to all of you. And everyone's like, no, no, no. I, l I love the randomness. And then you just hear Jim going, I oh, know, I just got a phone call. <laughs> it just takes off. Oh, I love early Jim stuff where you just are. It's it's so nice. And so no one's had this happen. And Miles, of course, then turns to Murphy and wants to know, maybe she doesn't have the story. Just hopefully, no. maybe. And, and Murphy die. is this close to frying these guys. 
And poor Miles just gets back on the elevator. <laughs> and then everyone gets off the elevator. Yep, because he's on it because he's <laughs> a target. He's a target. And so Murphy goes to her best friend Frank and is asking, "It could this be true? She's never dropped a story. It's extortion. And she asks him what he would do in this scenario, and he says he would ask her advice. I love that line so much. It's, it's wonderful. such a detail about their relationship. Mm-hmm. And the way that Joe does it, mm. um, I feel like we really haven't gotten a lot of, of Frank to talk so much about mm-hmm. Joe Ragabuto yet, but we will. Um, it's so heartfelt. He's like, I'd mm-hmm. ask you. Like, it's well, so it's, sweet. And I think the... The important thing is what we have seen of Joe so far is in Frank and Murphy's relationship. Yes. And this is such a, again, a wonderful, platonic, grounded moment of trust and and vulnerability. And it's just, I, I relate so much to this conversation to, you know, we all talk about how we, I'm really good at giving advice. I can give really clear, really intuitive and insightful advice and I'm so bad at getting it and when someone says back to me well if I said this to you what would you say mm-hmm. it's just it's such a it's a true friend moment so she keeps saying that she wishes Miles would, Miles would just tell her to drop the story I love that she says he's being so brave oh, I love that I feel like in this episode I I will talk about it more when we get to the end but I think I'm Miles yeah I didn't. I didn't think I could see that. Thank you. And not just the Jew thing. Thank you. Yes, it's not just the Jew thing. It's not just the Jew thing. Uh, I never really saw. Like, obviously, wanted to be Murphy. We all. We all want. We all want to have a Murphy inside of us. Mm-hmm. But I never really was like, oh, I'm. The, you know, when you take those tests, which character are you? Mm-hmm. I'd yep. never be like, I'm totally gonna get Murphy. I'm totally this person. <laughs> I am Murphy. But there's something about this episode, and again, looking at it now with a more critical eye. Mm-hmm. I mean, a more adult critical eye, I should say. Mm-hmm. I just. I don't know. I really sort of relate to him in this scene. Is like I feel like I do that a lot too. Where like I go, no, I can do it. I can do it. Yeah, I'll just do it. You are. <gasps> I'm just thinking more and more about interacting with you. You really are. You're like I'm, I don't really know Someone what I'm doing, to, but I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm not sure who I am. Maybe I'm the asp. I'm gonna have to think about this. Yeah, but but this and then the monologue at the end. Yeah. I was like, I'm Miles. This makes sense. I'm not sure what I think of that, but I'm Miles. Oh. And also, my nephew's now named Miles. Yes. So, uh, you know. It's just meant to be. It's meant to be. So, Frank also re- reveals that there's another bet going on in this world of bets. So, he has an office pool going, and he has it in there that uh, Miles will already be on a bus to Seattle. Yeah, so he's lost. And Murphy hates this stuff. And she does this wonderful line that I love so much. But this says, is why she hates this stuff. This she line. hates it because, uh, so she says... Everything was working so well. I was going to put guys in jail. It's my favorite thing. Chevy Frank? Yes. Okay. Don't take it so hard, Merv. The Republicans are still in office. There'll be other chances. <laughs> that was a bad impression of Frank. I don't know why. We I both got very like, oh. We're talking about two, like, yeah. yeah. And, uh. then, and then he puts his arm around her like a pal. The audience and they goes walk crazy. Off. The audience goes crazy. It was very like a Fonzie moment. It was. It was like, yeah. oh, we're all laughing because that's a really inside <laughs> joke. Republicans. Yeah. But what's so jarring about that joke now, too, is like, this is a very relevant joke today. It made my current day self go, oh. Also a great example that we used to be okay with just making fun of the people who are in power. Yeah, we were allowed to do that. I mean, once we go through the series, they make fun of the Clintons just as much. Pro- well, oh, maybe yeah. Not, maybe not just as much. But it's but about do. making fun of people in power. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we do here. That's what SNL is. And yep. all of a sudden, I feel like we've forgotten that. Yeah, there's a lot of party lines right now. But that's, yeah. uh, that's another podcast. That's a whole other podcast. So, we move on to... Uh, a darkened FYI studio, um, and uh, Murphy comes in looking for Miles, and she goes, I know you're scared, and he comes out. He's been hiding. He's got a Aww. little um, a sleeping bag. Miles like, how'd you find me? And she says, Ernie the janitor. Something I also should have mentioned that names like Mickey and Ernie, these are names that come back. Whether we ever meet them, I love the consistency. They don't just make up a name. Mm -hmm. That there's a world that has been created and someone somewhere has made note that, okay, the archives guy is Mickey and Merv is the editing guy. And Ernie is the janitor. They've created the world. They've and and I, I just, love that. I could be wrong, but I think that these names come up again. And uh, and Miles is upset because he promised to me he wouldn't tell anyone. And Murphy, very you know, out of character from what we understand, says that she's gonna uh, you know not do the story if he doesn't want her to, and she can pass it on to Jane Polly. Maybe they'll kill her. <laughs> and Miles is so touched, 
and he has this great it's not really a monologue i guess but this this beautiful section and and something that i love about murphy brown that i feel like also unfortunately gives me a, a high bar for other sitcoms and i'm more into dramedies nowadays is mm-hmm. the fact that that they mix comedy and drama like the apartment is one of my favorite movies of all time mm-hmm. because it has a mix of comedy and drama mm-hmm. and i wish that more sitcoms would do that and maybe because they're shorter now because they're fitting in more commercials it's just hard to do that but this to me is, the, is sort of the perfect match. And I'm going to quote what Miles says, because it is very relevant today. We're journalists, right? A free and courageous press is the backbone of the society. The public needs to know the truth, and it's our responsibility that they see the truth, no matter the personal risk. Crime cannot and must not win. Mm. And that is definitely something that's happening right now, where the idea of a free press is perhaps um, being questioned. It is, yeah. Even... Yeah, where there's a lot about fake news, media, what the, is the what journal- is credible, if journalistic integrity, what yeah. is what is that they can't be trusted. Yeah, that they can't be trusted, or they should be silenced if they say something we don't like. And some people have. I mean, they're mm-hmm. fa- because of Twitter, because of you know more accessibility. Um, p- journalists' families have been targeted. Mm-hmm. Their information has been doxed online. Yep, it's it's very dangerous. Well, and- you know, no matter the personal risk. People need to know the truth. Well, and also there's, we're about to go in right now, and I've been talking to a lot of people about this, is we're about to, it's just the net neutrality conversation, oh, yeah. especially in this day and age about now we might be able to even influence even more what people have access to mm-hmm. as far as free press. And and the the idea that we, we should all have as, as a right and access to the truth and that yeah. th- even our own access might be at at stake in this world right now. So I, I think this, like we we talk about often, and you know we're broken records at this point. But how relevant the show is, and these these conversations are happening right now, and they haven't been fixed. No, and you know shows like this, and and eventually The West Wing mm-hmm. later on in my life, really made me admire journalists and mm-hmm. see them as these uh, prestigious uh, beacons of truth in a way. I mean that's a little. Sorkin and over the top but to, so it's been very painful for me to see sort of the integrity of journalism as an art to be knocked down the way that it has yes well and it's also just the topics at hand in this i this show and you and i both talk about the west wing was a huge show for both of us and the being choosing to be aware of these topics and choosing to be informed about and how important it is to focus on on actively seeking out information outside of your own bubble and and reading the news and so on. But even recently, we've had a a surge in, and this is clearly based on uh, current events, but a surge in trying to support journalistic arts. So we had, you know, Best Picture Spotlight, and then we have a movie coming out, The Post, soon, that talks about very relevant issues about do you run a story or get shut down? And it's just quite relevant at this moment. Yes, so what's great about this is we have this amazing, beautiful moment. And can I just say, again, I was talking about props. Grant Shaw takes a shaving cream bottle out of his bag and just gestures with it <laughs> in this way that just, I love it so much. It's it's so specific. So Murphy just says, okay. Yep. Because she's an adult. And, and Miles freaks out. No, 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 we don't have to do this. He's going to hack me up like a piece of liver. Aww. And Murphy's just like... I have a long ride home. You're already home. Uh, make a decision. I, I love the way she says that he's looking at her like Bambi caught in the headlights. Aww. And then she she just, she confesses. She's like, I like that you never give up. I like the way you pester me. I even getting used to the smell of clearasil in the morning, and I hate that I like you. <laughs> and then again, Miles is so shocked, but he also looks really touched. He's like, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> Don't blab it around. But I just, I sort of, it's such a great example of a great scene because there's yes. conflict. Mm-hmm. She just needs him to make an answer because she feels so guilty. Yes. Just, say, just make an answer so I can go on with my life. Well, I guess what we talked about earlier about importance of, of dramedy, quote unquote, that a comedy shouldn't, shouldn't and isn't always just laughs. Otherwise, you don't enjoy the big laughs because there isn't something to balance it out. Mm-hmm. And a drama can't have levity. And so I think that's why these scenes are so wonderful, because it's not trying to 
undercut a, a moment of sincerity. And then Miles has another really great sort of monologue about something that I think we all can relate to, wh- how he wanted to be a journalist as a kid, and, and he would... It, it reminds, like, of us talking about why we love Murphy Brown. Yep, you know, exactly. we were children, and yet we were watching an adult thing. He's watching the news. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you look at what you want to be. He had a little hat with the word scoop on it. Yes. And again, that was when I went, oh, my God, I'm Miles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, like, I wanted to, I've wanted to be an actor, a professional actor, ever since I was seven years old, and I saw Emma Thompson in Much Ado About Nothing. Mm. Like, that moment for me, that form who you are, that's why it's called your formative years. And it's just, it's so relatable that he saw this thing and it meant so much to him. And it's so fascinating to me, um, you know, I've, I speak to people who love Murphy Brown and also the West Wing is, is a big, you know, fandom to it. Mm-hmm. And, and it fascinates me to meet someone who goes, I watched the same thing you did, but I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to be a politician. Mm-hmm. I watched the same show you did. I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to be a journalist. I mm-hmm. wanted to be a producer. I wanted to be an yeah. editor. And it's just so fascinating to me that we can all look at the same piece of art and it inspires us in a different way. That's why art is so important. It's interpretation. It is. Um, so Miles says that they're going to run the story. And, yeah. and, we're, and the, there's also this great shot of Candace Bergen looking at him when he's talking about dreaming of being a journalist. Yeah. Like, I think they're bonding about on that moment, too, because... Mm-hmm. Murphy also have had those same dreams mm-hmm. of being a journalist, and she understands. She says, "See you tomorrow," and then she calls him Scoop. She calls him Scoop. She calls him Scoop. So then we transition, and uh, the show is is wrapping up, and Jim is informing us that um, Hawk has been charged with accepting a bribe and obstructing justice, and Sturgis has been charged with bribing and obstruction of just- justice. Um, I don't know if you noticed, um, you know, the pictures on the FYI in the background? Yes, Barnett. Yeah. <laughs> one of them is Barnett Kilman. <laughs> I can't. It's the one at the top. I don't know which one is Sturgis, supposed to be Sturgis and which one is supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, I don't know who he is, but yeah. it's definitely Barnett Kilman. It's definitely Barnett Kilman uh, looking kind of like, I'm a bad guy. Um, but I can't tell who the second person is. I don't know if it's one of the right. It's not one of the writers, but it must be someone. Does it's, anyone know? Anyone else in the show want to... Russ Woody, send, do you know? Send us a Twitter message. We don't know who it is. Um, so, yes. So we find out that they got the story and stuff is happening. They got the guys. They're getting charged and they're going off to the, the slammer. And Frank uh, gave us a tour of Edwards Air Force Base. And my favorite is that Jim then turns to Corky and says, And Corky, interesting visit to a seance. Nice try. The nice try part is what makes it magic. <laughs> I love it. Yes. I just love it interesting visit to a seance. Also, back to the clothes. Sorry. Oh, um, never be sorry. They're amazing. That outfit that she has, which is sort of this brown outfit yes. with, um, like, I guess, like uh, lines on the jacket and this sort of silvery... This, yeah, the silver scarf yeah. kind of like spilling down. I have a couple. I have like top five favorite outfits that By she's way, worn. We're talking about Murphy's outfit, not Corky's. Yes, Murphy. Yes. Definitely have a list of my top five favorite outfits. Obviously. Through the whole series that Murphy has worn, mm-hmm. that's one of my favorites. It's wonderful. I I'm mesmerized by that scarf and the way it just kind of spills down. Well, the colors look so great on her with her hair and her mm-hmm. complexion and particularly that scarf. Yep. Yeah. So, so anyway, off the subject of clothes. Uh, I have no problem with the fashions of this Thank show. You. Uh, so Murphy is very worried about Miles. He's been missing. Oh. She asks if anyone's seen him and Carl is just like, Silverberg, is he still alive? First Carl! It's our first Carl. So another thing I love about the show is that we have small recurring characters. Mm-hmm. Now, I was listening to an interview with Barnett, and he claimed that he pulled the actor who played Carl out of um, that sort of area as an extra. Mm-hmm. Rich Brinkley, who has had a bunch of credits beforehand. So I don't know if that was an exaggeration, or I know sometimes you can cast people not as an extra, but you don't have lines, yep. but you still are considered a principal, and maybe he didn't realize he wasn't an extra, or he was making men's meet and being an extra. But Carl becomes, just like yeah. John, the stage manager, mm-hmm. like a really big He's part a of the character. crew. And, uh, spoiler alert, is in love with Murphy. Yes. Oh, so in love with Murphy. Uh, I love it. Uh, so then Miles does appear... And uh, he's not changed his clothes. He has not. His tie. He's uh, He fell asleep in the bathroom. He's so tired. And he's being a little annoying. He's like, we stood our ground. And he starts half singing, I feel good. And is and he's kind of dancing. He's being very obnoxious. And his body language is amazing. And which leads to Murphy, Murphy saying, Miles, don't, don't make me deck you. 
It reminds me a little bit of when Miles thinks he's drunk. Yes. Uh, in uh, I think it's season yeah it's season two mm-hmm. when uh, it's a dry party and they don't tell Miles and he thinks he's drunk. Yep, he's just placebo affecting. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And then as he's just kind of in his delirious celebration that Mur- is irritating Murphy because she's been so worried about him, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets a phone call, and. The message was, he doesn't take the phone call, he just gets the message that uh, someone says, I'll be out in X to Y years, and then I will hunt you down like a, I think they say, they think it's a log in the street. A pig in the street, I think they think? I think it's just the first letter, because they say, no, no, it's a D, like a dog in the street. They're like, otherwise that makes no sense. <laughs> Carl's, uh, Carl's like, no, is very good. a dog He's in like, the street. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense if it's not a dog. Yeah. And... And what I, I love this interaction between Murphy and Miles because of the, the kind of the life lesson of like, he gets a good job, they did it, and then life moves on. Yeah. Like, and good deeds usually don't get uh, a curtain call. Yeah. Like he did, they had this great thing about, you know, he did the brave thing, they did the brave thing, and they risked their lives, and there's no acknowledgement. And he's kind of crushed because he's so relieved and it was such a big thing to him, but because this idea of you don't realize what didn't happen until something goes wrong. So it went right. It went well. So yay, on to the next story. And there's not the same fanfare that that equals what would have been the destruction of the other way. And uh, Sweet Murphy turns around and says, let's hear it for Miles. And they get a very unenthusiastic, yay. Yay. (laughs) And they hug and it's They do, which is really a big thing considering she didn't want to admit that she likes him. Yeah. I sort of wondered, is is it that she's growing up? You know, I mean obviously we don't really know Murphy before mm-hmm. the series, or is it just being sober? I think maybe I think being sober probably has given her a new perspective. I think so too. I think that's important. And I think also because when you're put into new situations that that force you're forced to re-examine yourself. So not only is she sober, but she's not working under someone who's a father figure to her. Yeah. She's forced to be almost the the parent figure in this scenario. She's really being very if not maternal and older sister heir to to Miles and being forced into a new role where you're not the younger, I think it's probably good for her. It's it's forced her to to re-examine how she fits in and and look a little bit more sympathetically on others and being conscious mm-hmm. you know so so to speak um can make you more conscious in your in relationship with people well and what is the whole the adage that you you don't know how well you know something until you teach it and she's teaching him these lessons yeah she is she's saying really she's taking point. them for granted and she's like oh no see you don't get a cheer so after the hug we go back to the townhouse and something that's interesting to me, because I forgot that it took this long to get Eldon again, because mm-hmm. we have not seen him since the pilot. Yep. But she goes, you're here. You're always here. And that makes me also go, is this one out of order? Yeah, that was... Was yeah. this not supposed to be three? Because I we have not seen him since the pilot. We so don't far, know he he's always there. He's not always been there. I mean, it could just be a line to establish that, mm-hmm. you know, because he doesn't have a lot of, you know, airtime. But I'd be curious in what order this was meant to be. Mm-hmm. And and Robert's back, which makes me so happy. We we had not seen him for a long time. He just mm-hmm. sparkles when he shows up. He's so delightful. On the shirt he's wearing with, like, the stars and the thing. Now, I know that the, he doesn't have in this episode, but he'll eventually wear a leather jacket. That's mm-hmm. actually Robert Pesser his jacket yep so i i think that some of the clothes might be his i'm not sure what how much of it is his clothes but that i did read i know the leather jacket is definitely his but mm-hmm. but the shoes and the shirt and the the painter pants eldon has painter's block yeah he, which is fair yeah he's spending a lot of time at murphy's mm-hmm. you know we would assume <laughs> painting a lot of things other than what he's supposed to the trim doesn't sing to me <laughs> I, I just love it. Um, but she doesn't, Murphy is just in the best mood. She doesn't care that he's not done, that he's She's been so there. The cheery. scaffolding is still up. Mm-hmm. Um, and she thinks that he needs a little inspiration. So Dancing in the Street is a song written by Marvin Gaye. You may have heard of him. Uh, William Mickey Stevenson and Ivy Joe Hunter. It first became popular in 64 when it was recorded by Martha the Vandellas. Uh, their version reached number two in the Billboard Hot 100 chart, which is pretty impressive, and peaked number four in the UK singles. It is one of Motown's signature songs. And in 1985, 
Uh, there was a duet cover by David Bowie and Mick Jagger, which and I think a few of you have probably heard. Unfortunately, that's the first time I ever heard the song. It's not unfortunately. It's just good that you... you I like that version a lot. Sure. It just... It just inspires not. you to learn the original. That's all. Murphy also has a great thing where um, she wants Eldon to dance with her, but he's oh. like, use the headphones. She says, life is short. It's good for the soul. Oh, truth. Eldon calls her out for dancing like a white girl. Mm-hmm. But what well, she does. I, I love is that Candace Bergen is dancing like a white girl from 1965. Yes, it is a very specific type of dance. I can only imagine that this is not how Candace Bergen really dances. If she does, I'm also super happy about this. It's precious. But it seems so particularly Murphy mm-hmm. and so particular to that kind of music. Mm-hmm. And it's hands and it's wide and she has the biggest grin on her face. And this scene gives me so much joy. I mean, also just seeing Robert Pastorelli again. Yeah, well, and but I do think it's important that we acknowledge, and this is something that we've talked about, is it is Motown is very important to Murphy Brown. Yes. A white woman in during third wave feminism, uh, which is a time that has been criticized for being a, a white woman's feminism. Yes. And the fact that something that is predominantly an African-American form of music is so important to her. Um, I find it very interesting to acknowledge that she's dancing like a white girl to what is considered, quote unquote, black music. And it's something that I know we want to talk about more in depth. We really want to get um, a guest on the show who can who can chat with us yes. further. So we're not just two white chicks talking about intersectionality. But I just want to acknowledge that this is something that kind of calls out this this form of music that she loves so much and the fact that it's not necessarily a given that she's going to love that type of music. And she's dancing with uh, a character who is technically ethnic Italian, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. white Italian, um, who can dance. Yes, he can. Who can dance. He gets down. I absolutely love it. He just, he he gets down and there's so much joy and... Every time I got to the scene, because I watched it a couple of times, I just, my eyes opened up and I was like, I forgot how great this is. And I love it. Eldon, you know, says, I feel tremendous. The word tremendous is so specific. And mm-hmm. I'm very into like word specifics for characters. And something that's great about the show too is that you could look at a line and probably figure out who was saying it. Yeah. There's certain word choices, there's certain nicknames, there's certain things that people use. And tremendous just feels very Eldon. And then they put their hands together, and he goes, this is the part where I flip you. <laughs> and then she flips her on his back, and she's like, what? And then it just and sort of ends. That's the end. <laughs> it's just, oh, I love that it ends. I wish he was in it more. Um, but quickly, before we do a little recap, I would love to talk about a very quick story about how Grant Shaw was cast. Because mm-hmm. as I mentioned um, in the last episode, it's one of my favorite casting stories of all time. Mostly because it's a casting story that could not happen today. Mm-hmm. So unlike uh, the other main characters, uh, Grant Shaw at the time had the least amount of experience. Mm-hmm. He, even Faith had she been on Thirty Something, she she had done, she had experience doing television and being in L.A. Grant was in New York, had about two I say two and a half credits because uh, one of them probably had not come out yet. By mm-hmm. the time he had done this, he'd been on Kate and Alley and was doing a lot of theater. Did Torch Song Trilogy. At one point, not in the original cast. Yeah. He works a lot at EST, which is a wonderful um, off-Broadway company here in New York. Mm-hmm. If you ever see a show there, there are tons of, po- of pictures of him and certain things on the wall. Actually, actually, I saw him in a one-act there. He came back and did Aww. something. I realized, yeah. I, I've seen him in a lot of stuff, I realized, because he still does theater in New York, which is great. He did a show written by Woody Allen with Jay Thomas. Oh, Jay. We can talk about more when um, we get to a Jay Thomas episode. So... They were getting to the point, the, the show, that, that Diane was just not happy with the people that they had. They were very close to offering it to, um, I never know if I say his name right, because I didn't watch Ally McBeal. Um, did you watch Ally McBeal? A little, not okay, enough to. Okay, so, so I apologize, I, uh, but the actor who played Richard Fish, I always want to know if it's Greg Germain or Greg German. I think, I thought it was Germain. I th- my my gut is Jermaine. I've never. I don't. I'm. I never think it's heard like, his name like said out loud. I've never actually heard out loud. Heard right. Yeah. Said it in yeah. My brain. Uh, because he. W- I had to talk about him in another podcast, and I was like, I have never heard his name said out loud. Also, interesting fact: um, Charles Kimbrough mm-hmm. and Janet Carroll, who plays the first Mrs. Dial, mm-hmm. played Richard Fish's parents on Ally McBeal. Oh, that was a weird 
changed the channel when I was like, Jim and Doris. Hey, why are Jim and Doris on Fox? <laughs> um, but Diane was really sort of wavering. She wasn't really sure. She just felt she hadn't found Miles and it wasn't really right. But they were getting close to the show. Like they had to pick someone. So they were putting, um, sort of the joke was they were putting everybody on tape who had understudied Matthew Broderick and Biloxi Blues. <laughs> like every every remotely Jewish, nebbishy kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, Barnett and Diane are just looking at the tape. And remember, back then it would have been like a VHS. Whereas today, and I have been in on pilot auditions where I've been the reader with the casting director, it's all digital. Yeah. And I have literally seen a casting director take the file and put in the garbage. Yep. Not even send it to L.A. Yep. So they're going through the video and they're fast forwarding and Diane notices him on a fast forward. Oh my God. And goes back. Bless. That would never happen today. So Grant flies out to LA thinking like, you know, this is not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. Doesn't even bring a change of clothes. They had to buy him underwear is my understanding. Because he didn't have clothes. And he booked it and kind of, Diane joked, kind of never went home. Uh, and they, you know, they were they were filming very quickly because it was down to the wire and mm-hmm. threw him into this. Um, and for someone who has very little film and TV experience, nailed it, nailed it. And I think it it suits the character. He's enthusiastic. He's new. He's wide eyed. There's a there's an element that, that kind of newness wouldn't have translated so well into other characters. But for Miles, it makes sense. If he was a little green, it it probably only showed up as character. One of the my favorite quotes that Diane says about Miles is he's like Wiley Coyote. Uh, no matter how many times the anvil fell on his head, he just get up and keep on going. Oh, That's I Miles. Love I love it. So thanks for joining us. Yes, we had a great time. Uh, please uh, find our, our Spotify playlist, the Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist. Uh, there will be a link on our website. Uh, when this episode airs, so now you can find us uh, that way to the Spotify as well. Please leave us a voicemail. Uh, you can leave a short message on how Murphy's influenced your life. You can also record yourself on your phone if you'd rather mm-hmm. and just email it to us. Um, the phone number is 646-450-6902 or you can email us at murphybrownpod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. We are also Murphy Brown Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Mm -hmm. And our website is murphybrownpod.com. Boom. Uh, And please, if you can send us a review on iTunes, it helps us find a wider audience. Mm -hmm. Um, More reviews we get, the more iTunes will um, advertise us to people. Click at a rating. Uh, Send us, you know, send us. Subscribe. Subscribe. Send us uh, what you think on on social media. And we'd love to share that and connect with you there. And otherwise, our next episode is Signed, Sealed, Delivered, Season 1, Episode 4. Where I will have... Very pointed opinions on Jake Lowenstein. Oh, oh, will she? Yes, I will. So we'll see you in two weeks for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Dan Quayle, Dan Quayle, Dan Quayle, Dan Quayle, Dan Quayle, Dan 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 Quayle. Quayle. Well, that's getting put in like every episode. (laughs) Can that just be the stinger at the end of this episode? And then we'll just end up using it later.